Hey, you are listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host tonight, Sean Dietrich, and we got a wonderful show for you coming to your live via the podcast airwaves and the radios all over the nation. You are fixing to hear some really good music by this gentleman on the stage here behind me, Adam Kieslin, everybody. Adam Kieslin.
I got this guitar here in Birmingham not so long ago. I was up here for a show. My old guitar was on the fritz, gave up the ghost. I had to have something to play, or else you'd just be forced to listen to my voice, which is probably not a very good thing. So I went to this thrift store, and in the back I saw these guitars hanging on the wall. I saw this old man standing next to him. I could tell he was a musician because he had long hair and he was eating a taco. Uh, normal old men do not eat tacos and have long hair. I said, I need a guitar and I'd like it to be old and I'd like it to sound real good. He said, hmm, I've got just the one, son. He went back to the wall and these old restored guitars were just works of art. He picked one off the wall and handed it to me. He said, play this, and this thing just seemed to play itself. And I am much of a guitarist, but it, when a guitar can do its playing for you, well, that's saying something. I said, I think I like it. I think I'll take it. He said, all right, I'll have a gift wrap. I said, how much is it? He said, $5,000. I said, hey, you know what? I think I'll take that play school guitar model on the wall right there behind you. And that's why I'm playing this here thing, you see. <laughs> but the truth is, I'm not much of a guitarist. I ain't never been much of a guitarist. I'm really an accordion player. That's what I was groomed to be. My granddaddy played the accordion. My uncle played the accordion. My granddaddy told me long ago, he said, you want to get chicks, son. Learn how to play the accordion. Oh, how wrong he was. But I did practice and I learned how to do it because I come from people whose idea of a good time was watching the Lawrence Welk show. So the Baptist approved entertainment is what it was. I learned how to play that accordion, but something was lacking, so I tried to, to pick up a instrument that I thought girls would like. My Uncle John taught me how to play this here guitar. I asked him, I said, I want to learn classical music. He said, okay, I can do that. I can teach you classical music. And he picked up a guitar and he played. You're cheating hard. We'll make you weep. You cry cry and try to sleep. I said, Uncle John, that ain't classical music. He said, if Hank Williams ain't a classic, then I ain't alive. I went to see my Uncle John not very long ago, actually. I went to show him, show him a few things on this guitar. Sometimes we get together on his front porch, which is built right outside of his RV, and we do what's called picking and grinning. But when I got there, he had the Baptist minister on the porch with him, Brother Dale. Brother Dale's a white-haired man who knows a little bit about hunting and fishing. He always wears suspenders that are camouflage color. Uncle John said, hey, why don't you come fishing with us? We're about to go. And Uncle John fired up his old truck and hooked up that 14-foot bass boat onto his truck. And we went down to the Choctahatchee Bay. We got out there on that flat water. And those two men did what old men have been doing since the beginning of time, ever since fishing was invented. They told stories. I don't know if you've ever been fortunate enough to hear an old man tell a story, but it's an art form. 
They tell stories with halos around their, around their heads. Average situations start to sound like fables and fairy tales. They talk about what it was like when the price of gas was five cents a gallon. When a woman was a woman and a man was a man. They talk about how entertainment has changed over the years and how music has changed. They talk about how the ideas that the generations that came after them hold are so different. Brother Dale said, you know, I can hardly watch TV anymore. It seems like, seems like every time I turn it on, the girls are wearing a little bit less than they were wearing yesterday, and the boys treat them with a little less respect. My Uncle John said, I feel the same way. I can't listen to the radio because I can't even understand what their music is about. My Uncle John said, do you know that when I was dating my wife, I didn't even kiss her before we got married. He said, what about you, Brother Dale? Brother Dale said, well, now, I don't know. What was your wife's maiden name before you got married? <laughs> my aunt had been working on my uncle for a long time to get him to go to a men's Bible study at the church. To women like her, Bible study is very important. He'd gone for 38 years, 38 years, avoiding her. Finally, he decided he would go and give it a shot because you got to compromise in marriage. That's just how things work. And so, when my aunt was on the way to Quilton Circle, she dropped my uncle off, and he was walking to the door of the fellowship hall. He was telling us about how it went. We were all hanging out on that little porch of his, and he said, you know, I walked straight through the fellowship hall, and the men all clapped for me. It turned out I was the 11th man through the door. They always give a door prize. So I got the door prize that night. I'd never won anything in my life. I said, what was the door prize? He said, it was a toilet brush. He said, yeah, I love it. I've been using it all the time, but I think I'm about ready to switch back to paper. I was in my uncle's living room while my, my aunt was cooking supper. I'll never forget it. She was making meatloaf with saltines and oatmeal embedded into the ground beef mixture. She used a little bit too much oregano that night, but nobody said anything about it because her taste buds just ain't been the same ever since she quit smoking. She was cooking, and my uncle, my uncle was playing with one of them triangle peg games made out of wood and golf tees, just like they have at the Cracker Barrel. He makes these, and he sells them. It doesn't take a whole lot of carpentry skill to make these kind of things, but he, he gets by. And while we were down there at that table, she was at the stove, and something caught her eye through that kitchen window. She looked across the street. She said, oh, he's back home from work. My uncle said, who's home from work? She said, that man from the young couple next door who just moved in. Oh, that young man, he's so handsome. Every time he comes home from work, he brings chocolates or he brings a, a bouquet of flowers. He's got a bouquet of flowers in his hand right now. She turned and she looked at my uncle. She said, you know, 
why don't you ever do things like that? My uncle said, I don't even know her. Well, about a few months ago, I was in the den with my uncle. I saw him pick up the phone. He picked up that phone and he called his daughter. He said, hey, I've got some bad news for you, Julie. Your mom and I are going to be getting divorced. After four to five years of marriage, I can hardly take this woman no more. She's gotten on my nerves. Everything she says is like sandpaper rubbing against my butt. I could hear Julie on the phone saying, oh my God, Daddy, Daddy, you're talking nonsense. Don't do anything like that. He said, no, our decision's been made, honey. I've already talked to a lawyer. Call your brother and deliver the news to him. Your mama and I will no longer be your mama and I in a few weeks. We're getting a divorce. I heard her say, Daddy, Daddy, just just hush. You're talking complete nonsense. I'm going to get off the phone right here. As soon as we're done, I'm going to call my brother. We're going to get two plane tickets. We're going to come down there. We'll be there tomorrow, and we're going to talk this thing out. Just promise me, promise me you won't do nothing until you see us and hear from us. My uncle hung up the phone, and he said, All right, Eli, I did it. The kids are coming in time for Thanksgiving this year. Adam teasing everybody. Adam teasing.
have gone. They tell me of that land far away, where the tree of life in eternal bloom sheds its fragrance through an unclouded day. December is just around the corner, and it seems like all we've got here in northwest Florida and South Alabama is rain. Rain. The sun has completely disappeared. Things have gotten kind of kind of dark and dismal, and, and people are starting to strongly question their denominational choice. But it does it does lend itself to soup. So people are eating a lot more soup than they used to eat, and even chili. People are eating chili. This kind of weather is depressing. Seasonal affective disorder, they call it, or the blues. But the blues is good. It's good. Because it reminds us, reminds us all sorts of things about life that are true, that are always true, that, that happiness does, does a little bit to cover up for, but things that are true, and they're always there. Life is not always perfect. Life is not always, it's not always pretty. It's gray. Sometimes it's dismal. And sometimes the only way to get through it is to cook yourself a little bit of soup. Christmas time is my favorite time of year, and we are four weeks out until the most glorious season. People have their decorations up. You can drive through my little neighborhood. You can see Christmas lights and all the gutters. I went to my, my aunt's house. Uh, she already had her Christmas decorations up, and I was sitting in her, in her den, and I saw this little nativity scene sitting on her coffee table it's been there forever i can remember this nativity scene going back as far back as i can remember and all all these little porcelain figurines just they hadn't changed much over the years but the three wise men on her on her nativity scene they were wearing these little black slick plastic trench coats and one of them was carrying a fire hose and they were all the three wise men were wearing fireman's hats 
And I, I sipped my, my tea, and I looked at these for a little bit. When I came back into the room, I said, Aunt Eula, why are, are the, the three wise men wearing fireman's hats? She said, well, don't you ever read your Bible? It says right there in the Holy Scriptures, three wise men came from afar. I do love the way old old ladies' houses look during this season. They go to all the extra trouble. My Aunt Eula hadn't taken her Christmas tree down since the early 1950s. She just leaves it up, and sometimes she'll move it to the guest room. My wife and my mother-in-law, they know how to place so many lights on a Christmas tree. Last year, we placed 4,800 lights on a small six-foot Christmas tree. We got a letter from the electric company that wanted to know if we was operating a, uh, a device that was normally used for capital punishment. <laughs> the day of my wedding was on December the 19th, was just around the corner, and there were Christmas trees on the altar of God behind us. Christmas trees. They were all wrapped with, with lights. My mother-in-law, my aunt, and my wife had gone to great pains to wrap these trees in so many lights that we could, we could conduct entire service with all the lights off. Everything that was coming from, from these trees was what lit the service. And I got to choose the music for my wedding. Miss Betty was our pianist. She was a small, frilly-haired woman with white hair. She always wore pearls. And she asked me, she said, what kind of music would you like for your wedding this year since it's Christmas? I said, well, I think I'd like hymns, you know, Christmas hymns. I love Christmas hymns and my favorite kind of music. And I can think of no better music to, to adorn my service with. She said, oh, I think that's wonderful. What would you like, what would you like to leave the sanctuary to? What would you like your exit song to be? I said, hmm, well... Silent Night would be a bad choice, I think. Uh, I said, how about Joy to the World? She said, oh, what a wonderful tune. Okay. Our wedding was beautiful. My wife and I stood before them Christmas trees, and we took our vows. We held hands. We, we even said a prayer together, our first prayer. We touched our foreheads together while we did it. And then we turned and we faced the audience, which was half of Bruton, Alabama. Brother Bob, he held up his left hand and he announced to everybody, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. and Mrs. Sean Dietrich, and I saw Miss Betty behind the piano lift her hands up and she came a-crashing down on the keys and she sang, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. (laughs) And my wife looked at me and said... I'm going to kill you. (laughs) But we're coming up on our 15 years, and she still hadn't done it yet. I guess progress is being made in my house. We were in Birmingham a few weeks ago. I was there on some business doing some writing. I was at a restaurant, Mexican restaurant, and I was ordering off their menu. There was a dish called chilaquiles. Chilaquiles, which is eggs and tortilla chips crumbled up and placed into enough uh, pig fat to short-circuit U.S. Congress and fried up and placed onto a plate with melted cheese all on the top. Chilaquiles verdes, it's called. And And the verdes is green sauce. Unless my Spanish teacher was lying to me. 
they top it in green sauce and they give it to you on a, on a hot plate and they, they serve it with refried beans. It's a wonderful dish. And my waitress was a mix of Mexican and American. She was a, a Mexican-American woman with, with light-colored skin. Sweetheart of a woman. Young, young. It was a slow day and she began talking to me and we started conversing. My Spanish isn't very good, but I do try. Uh, she was kind to tolerate my terrible, terrible gringo words. She said, you know, I, I'm a widow. I'm a, I'm a widow. My husband died shortly after we got married. We'd only been married for four and a half years. and He left me with a four-year-old daughter. My husband was from Huntsville. He was in the steel industry. I was stuck raising my daughter on my own. You know, life can be tough sometimes. She said, but I got a job here in this restaurant. I got a job cooking. Because that's what my mother had taught me to do. She taught me to cook. And that was my, my biggest talent in life. So I got this job cooking. She told me about it. She told me about how she'd show up early and she'd do all the kitchen prep work with an older lady named Marguerite. And they would cook and they would, they would stand behind this long countertop full of vegetables and they would just chop and they would fry and they would saute and they would make tortillas and they would make, they would make enchiladas and they would make fajitas and they would make chilaquiles verdes and they would wrap those those wonderful things and corn husks that we call, what do we call those? It's, the cooking can be therapeutic. It can be so therapeutic. She would show up to work and she would spend her days getting lost with her chef's knife and, and dressed in her apron and smelling the fine aromas of cumin and, and chili powder and, and hot peppers and onions, cebollas kitchen is a therapeutic place. She would stay there late and she would cook into the wee hours of the morning for the next day ahead. And she had a friend in her neighborhood watching her daughter, a four-year-old daughter. One night she was at the restaurant cooking. After a rush, she was getting ready for the day that followed. And she was taking out a big old trash bag. She carried it over her shoulder. She went through the door. She went to that dumpster she threw it into the dumpster. She was about to walk inside and she heard something behind her. It was a sound. It sounded like cardboard boxes being knocked over. The sound of, of feet. She looked into the distance and she saw four legs in the shadows and long floppy ears. She could hear it panting. She could hear it whimpering. She felt sorry for this dog. But life's hard, and who's going to feel sorry for her, she thought. Even so, dogs have this special power over humans. She was going to turn around and walk back inside and forget all about this stray thing, but something moved her. She went toward the dog, and she held out her hand. The dog, to her surprise, came near her and pressed his cold nose against her hand and got right up against her like he... He wanted some affection. All things that live seem to need affection, she thought. So she pet his head, and he did not run from her. 
like most strays might have. He was brindle colored, a mixture of black and brown and tan. He had a white face. She went back into the kitchen and she got chicken scraps and she got some sauteed beef fat and she got a few raw eggs and she got some potatoes she had cooking that were soft and she mashed it all up into a big bowl and she put it out there by the dumpster form. He came toward that bowl. He ate everything in only a few bites. She said, you better slow down. You better slow down or you're going you're gonna to turn your stomach inside out. But the dog didn't hear. He just looked at her. He wanted more. So she went back inside and she, she got a few more things from the refrigerator, some things that were about to expire. She placed them down there for that dog and he just ate everything all up. She said, what's your name? He didn't answer her. He just looked at her with those two almond-colored eyes. She said, you need a shelter. You need a shelter where someone can take care of you. And so she brought him into her Nissan Altima with rusted fenders and tires that needed air in them. She put him in the back seat. and She said, don't get anything messy. This is a brand new car for me. Brand new car for her. It was a 1989 model. He sat in the back and he looked at her through that rearview mirror while she drove home. She said, I'm taking you to the shelter tomorrow. I promise. You cannot stay with me. Because life was too busy for a dog. Life was too busy to be, be taking care of a dog. She already had enough responsibility. She had a four-year-old daughter who needed her. And she had, she had a, enough hard times paying rent, and paying cell phone bills, and paying, paying for insurance. But she was trying to give her daughter some semblance of happiness. She did not have time for a dog. The next day, that next morning, she swore she was going to take that dog to the shelter. But that dog just looked at her in the mirror and, well, you know how dogs are. When she got him home, once her little daughter laid eyes on that dog, all bets were off. There was no way that dog was going back to a shelter. They put him in the shower together. Her daughter and her wore bathing suits into their shower. And they used fancy girly shampoos all over this dog. They sudsed him up with shampoo and they rinsed him off the water. Beneath them turned midnight black. And they sudsed him up again and the water underneath them was more of a khaki color this time. And they sudsed him up again and the water beneath them was just a little bit dirty. And then they conditioned him with lavender smelling conditioner. And when he came out of that bathroom, he shook his coat so vigorous he got water all over the sheetrock and the mirrors. And, and hair was shedding and all over the floor mixed with the water making these little swirly designs on the floor. He kept shaking himself all over them and they dried him off. And then they got the blow dryer out and they blow dried him. And, and he sneezed while they blow dried him. She said, you have caused a mess in this room. You make a big mess, you, you ugly dog. Her daughter named the dog Dave. It was an American name, but it was the name of her father. His name was really David. David. But the American version would be David or Dave for short. They called him Dave. And that night she made him a pallet in the corner of pillows and quilts and blankets. And Dave curled right up as if he knew what to do. 
she slept in her bed and she she didn't sleep very well because she knew that this dog was watching her. Whenever she opened her eyes and looked into that corner, she could see Dave just looking at her with his mouth open. He was panting. It's hard to get anything done when a dog's looking at you with his mouth open, panting. I myself have tried to write before with my dog looking at me, mouth open, panting. It's, it's, it's a restless feeling, and you can't get anything accomplished when something is looking at you with that kind of face. She looked across at him in the darkness, and she said, What is it that you want? I give you everything already. What do you need? And he just looked at her, and he panted. Didn't say anything. She said, Oh, I suppose you want to come up here and sleep with me. So she patted the bed, she patted it one time. Before she could pat it a second time, that dog was already up in the bed beside her, curled up in a tight little ball. He smelled like lavender. He fell asleep and he started snoring beside her. As soon as she fell asleep, she smelled something. It was a smell that was foul enough to crack the windows in her bedroom. She looked at that dog, Dave. She said, I should have never given you them chicken parts. (laughs) Next morning, I woke up and she made breakfast over the stove for her and her daughter. She made chilaquiles verdes. She had some leftover tortilla chips from the restaurant and some eggs. And she covered them with cheese and the dogs looked at him while they ate. It's the same look dogs have been giving since the beginning of time. It's a look that says, I don't want dog food this morning. I want your food. And she did what women and men and children have been doing since the beginning of time. She gave in to these big puppy dog eyes and she fed him from her table. She spoiled him. She made a monster out of this little thing. But he was a good dog. He was a good dog. He went with her wherever she went, riding shotgun in the car. Riding, riding shotgun in the car. He sat in her living room and waited Whenever she would come back home from work, she could see him sitting there in the window, his silhouette just waiting for her. He watched television with them. He ate meals with them. He went on vacations with them. He slept with them. He did everything with her and her daughter. And for eight Christmases, he was there with her. She made him a little sweater out of, out of yarn, knitted it for him. His name was written on the back in red yarn on a white sweater. It said, Dave. They left him presents under the tree. They, they gave him a, a rawhide bone. Gave him a can of special dog food. Eight Christmases. But good things can't last forever. He was out, he was out running one day. He'd escaped. He did this sometimes. And a delivery van hit him from behind and caused internal bleeding. She had to make a decision that nobody ever wants to make. She walked into that little vet's office and she looked at him, laid there on the table. They injected a little red-colored solution into his veins and she held him. And his eyes gently rolled back into his head. And she cried. And her daughter cried. That's what she told me. It's been one of the toughest years I ever have, she said. But things took a change a few weeks ago. She was out for a walk with her daughter. They're walking, walking along, and there's an upscale neighborhood just down the street from them, an upscale subdivision. 
nice houses, tall two-story houses, totally different from the, from the dilapidated houses she and her daughter live in. They're walking to get some exercise, and her daughter, who's a 12-year-old now, is walking beside her. And her daughter spotted a sign at the end of that nice neighborhood. It said, free puppies. Free puppies. Curiosity got the best, and then they went to that house that was selling the puppies. They knocked on the door. The lady invited them into their garage. And there they saw puppies romping and playing on each other with long, floppy ears. They were, they were whimpering very quietly, and they were making big old yellow puddles of T.T. The mother of this litter was midnight black, but most of the puppies, all except for two, were brindle-colored with white faces. She went to that woman and she said, I don't understand. The mother is midnight black, but these dogs, they're multicolored. She said, why? The woman told her, she said, oh, well, several months ago, several months ago, we were saving our dog to breed Labradors. And this crazy dog come running in the neighborhood, had a green collar on. He was brindle colored with a white face. And well, you know what happened next. The rest is history. That woman in that booth in that Mexican restaurant looked at me. She said, it was Dave. It was Dave. And he had a little too much fun. (laughs) She brought out her cell phone. And she showed me pictures of a 12-year-old girl holding a tiny shaped little brindle colored puppy with a white face little puppy she said my daughter named him Dave Jr. she told me that Dave Jr. already has nine presents underneath the Christmas tree nine he's already a part of the family she said you know I did not want a dog I have no time in my life for dogs. And then I see Dave behind that dumpster. And well, you know how dogs are. I said, yes, I do. Yes, I most certainly do. The greatest souls I have ever known in my life have had long ears and halitosis. They're loyal to a fault. They have all the qualities of man and none of his vices. I guess what I'm trying to say is the greatest friends that I've ever had in this world have always had fleas. Hey, have a Merry Christmas. Thank you very much for having me tonight. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host today, Sean Dietrich. And man, it's been a bona fide pleasure, if I do say so myself. Hope you join us next week, maybe even a week after that, if you ain't got nothing going on. That glorious music you heard behind me today was Adam Keesland from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Started playing bass as a freshman in high school and started messing around with the guitar shortly thereafter. And it mushroom clouded from there. Since then, he's become one of the most multi-talented musicians you will ever hear in your life, playing with a slew of bands with national reputations. To find anything more about what he does, look him up, Adam Keevlin, Adam 
K-I-E-S-L-I-N-G. Find his music on Bandcamp or any other platform you can think of. Download his album today. To find anything more about what I do, you can visit SeanOfTheSouthShow.com. While you're there, I hope you take the time to drop me a line to him about your birthday announcements, wedding invitations, grandparents' anniversaries, potluck socials, and any other event you can think of. And I'll do my best to read them over the air for my friends because I love to do that sort of stuff for my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, they say the early bird gets the worm. But what do they say about the early worm? Adios. Adios.